joining us today on Superheroes of Science, we are so pleased to welcome Dr. David Padgett. Dr. Padgett is an Associate Professor of Geography at Tennessee State University. So welcome and thank you for taking the time to join us this afternoon. Well, good afternoon. So today I'm going to be talking about uh, sea level rise in North American coastal regions um, and impacts upon coastal aquatic ecosystems. Among other things, I'm also a global observations and benefit to benefit the environment partner and trainer for Tennessee State University. And so GLOBE is a program funded mostly by NASA uh, that has as its primary goal uh, improving science education at the kinderga kindergarten through uh, 12th grade level. Uh, I've also been a, a GIS consultant and I've um, won a few awards and I'm a native of Baltimore, Maryland, and I'm a proud graduate of the Western Kentucky University Hilltoppers and the University of Florida Gators. Um, but before all of that happened, um, I was uh, growing up in Baltimore, Maryland, and 40 years ago, uh, I was in the uh, Chesapeake Bay Foundation Summer Science Research Program. I guess I must have been 16, because I'm 56 now. And the project took place on the uh, uh, at the Fox Island Education Center, and we spent the summer engaged in all times of uh, estuarine ecosystems research. During this pandemic, I hadn't seen my parents in about a year and a half. And when I went home, my mother started digging through some of our old stuff and, and found this uh, old map that I drew 40 years ago of Fox Island. And you might notice you, uh, North Arrow, you know, isn't exactly where it should be, of course. And uh, maybe over 40 years time, the island has changed. Uh, it doesn't seem as if it's as large as it was, um, assuming that my cartography was on point. My project that summer was to determine the relationship uh, between uh, the vegetation or, or estuarine vegetation and insect habitats. And so I was trying to find, determine if there was a uh, spatial correlation between where different insects were found on the island and different plants, or did certain insects favor different plant species? So that was my um, um, project for the, the summer. And, uh, you know, not to toot my own horn, but I, I won, uh, best project that summer. <laughs> uh, so that was when I was 16. I had no idea that I was going to become a geographer. No idea uh, that I'd be drawing maps and spending time in uh, studying coastal areas uh, past that point. Um, so I'm going to talk about uh, sea level rise and just how some of the ways that I've been going about uh, studying it related to some of the work that I'm uh, currently doing uh, in and around coastal Alabama. Uh, and interestingly enough, some of you might have heard on the news that the uh, International Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, released its sixth assessment report, like literally just released it just in time for this presentation. Uh, so part of that report discusses uh, the relationship between climate change and sea level rise. So we'll take a quick look at that. Um, and then we'll delve into the impacts of sea level rise upon coastal aquatic ecosystems just a little bit, uh, just to give you a brief introduction. Uh, we can't 
we don't have nearly enough time to really get deep into it, but just enough to give you a taste. Uh, and then we'll talk about a specific uh, uh, coastal ecosystem, wetlands ecosystems uh, that are being significantly negatively impacted by sea level rise. Uh, so just a little background. Um, what I'm doing in the uh, area around Mobile Bay is um, developing the um, backdrop, I guess you could call it, or the, the planning uh, phase for what will eventually become the Africatown, Africatown Connections Blue Way project. Uh, so and you've probably heard of a greenway where you have you ride bikes and go jogging, uh, but this is a blue way where people can go kayaking and fishing and canoeing and whatever else people do in this coastal region. And at the same time, uh, learn about the history of a place called Africatown, which I don't have nearly enough time to talk about. But if you Google Africatown, Mobile, Alabama, uh, you will learn about this fascinating story. As a matter of fact, uh, it was the cover story on National Geographic uh, magazine in February of 2020. And it basically tells the story of the last uh, known uh, ship that transported Africans who came here to be enslaved. And that happened in 1860. And archaeologists found the uh, ship in 2018. And so that has brought a lot of attention to this community. And they are uh, working on developing what they call heritage tourism. Uh, if you also Google a place called Williamsburg, Virginia or Colonial Williamsburg, uh, that's similar to what the people of Mobile want to have happen, happen with Africatown, taking this rich history and making it a place where people can come and visit and learn. And in this case, uh, boat and kayak and fish and spend time around the water. And so this is a project that's done in collaboration with the National Park Service. Um, part of my background is in geographic information systems. And so the National Park Service Cultural Division uh, did not have and does not have uh, geographic information systems technology um, capacity. And so they came to me. I, I had already been working in the community prior to this uh, envisioning of this blue way. Uh, and asked me to develop a map. And then afterwards, they came and said, well, uh, we want to do some design, uh, some architectural landscape design on some of these sites. Can you also capture some drone images? Uh, and so we went there earlier this summer, we meeting myself and my um, drone pilot. And so this is, this is a Dr. Uh, Claire Grove, who also happens to be a medical doctor. And in fact, she uh, well, sorry, she is an alum of Indiana University right down the road. Um, and so she um, uh, also is a uh, Federal Aviation Administration licensed uh, uh, drone or unmanned aerial vehicle pilot. And so in order to do commercial work such as this, you have to have that license. And just as an aside, about 95% of FAA licensed uh, drone pilots are men. 
And obviously Claire is a woman, she's also a woman of color. And so she is a very important role model in terms of science, technology, engineering, and math. She's such a multifaceted individual. And so she uh, uh, flew our um, DJI Mavic 2. So yeah, I just met uh, Claire by chance uh, while I was on vacation and, and uh, we started talking and she, uh, she's now an empty nester and she's doing her thing now. You know, the kids are on, out of the house and she's doing drones now and still doing medical consulting. Um, but anyway, so, okay. <laughs> so a lot of us, you know, we think of sea level rise, um, you know, a lot of us uh, unfortunately get our first exposure to this kind of concept through Hollywood. And I can't think of any movies, but I've seen a couple uh, there was one car, I can't think of it, it was called uh, Geostorm or something like that. Oh, yes. One of my and, favorite B-movies. <laughs> yeah, that one is like, come on. And, and now they've got one, I haven't seen it, I, I fell asleep on it, it's called, uh, it's a Lifetime movie, it's called um, Psycho Storm Chaser. Uh, now, the first five minutes, if if you know anything about weather and climate, what have you, you'd fall, falling out of your chair, laughing. I mean, but it's it's not as bad as Twister. Um, the twister was really bad, uh, entertainment value, but you know, I've been, I've been in tornadoes, like in them, just like that. And you're not cracking any jokes, watching any debris fly by you, whatever, whoever you pray to you, you find them right there. there. <laughs> that tornado bears down on you. <laughs> There's none of that joking around and talking about your relationship and are we going to be together? No, 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 no. Uh, anyway, but, um, so, but, but really sea level rise is not as violent as that. It's, it's very subtle. It might not be too long before people have a problem dining at the off the hook marina and grill, of course, unless you want to do boat in dining. Um, and so we saw this or everywhere we went in this coastal area, no rain. And, yet, and these aren't they, like flood conditions either. Oh, there was no rain. This is just sea level coming up, encroaching, and in one place, the Williamsbrook Park in Mobile. And this is a park. Here's a park pavilion. You're supposed to be able to walk across here and not swim across. And so this is very subtle, and it's it's disruptive. I mean, we saw places where there were um, restaurants that had parking lots that had two and three feet of water throughout the entire parking lot. So we can just so there, you can just see the impacts of this. And uh, in, when I was in the coastal region in Louisiana uh, years ago, uh, I was taken to what used to be clamming and fishing communities that aren't there anymore. Uh, and really, even before the communities were flooded and they lost their land. They left because the changing uh, chemistry of the water wiped out the oyster beds. And that's what, how these people made a living. And so once the oyster beds were gone due to sea level rise, uh, there went their livelihood and they had to go. And so uh, these, it doesn't seem as if it's a lot of rides. Uh, it's just a little water in the parking lot, but uh, that's changed in water chemistry can result in huge impacts to these aquatic ecosystems. And I just thought that, you know, if you're not living in a coastal area, 
you might not notice this, but it, we can just because the water's just because the, the level is rising, how is that changing the chemistry itself? Well, if you have water that is, you know, estuarine or saline or has salt water and it mixes in with too much fresh water, uh, aquatic life has very narrow tolerance ranges for things like pH. Uh, so let's say there's a fish that has a pH tolerance between 6.5 and 6.8, let's say. Um, and something happens, it changes the water chemistry, that pH level drops to 6.4. Uh, all of those fish die, not some of them, all of them. And so, it, and, and you might say, well, wow, isn't that fickle? But think about human beings. You know, our body temperature is 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit on average. And if it goes up only three degrees Fahrenheit to 101 degrees Fahrenheit, you're in deep trouble. You know, if it goes up a few more degrees to only uh, 102, three degrees Fahrenheit, you're in serious trouble. And so it's only a couple of degrees. So fish are the same way, or aquatic life is the same way to, with pH. If it changes or if the amount of salinity in water changes, it can wipe out uh, plant life. And that's exactly what is happening uh, throughout this region. Uh, so going back into that uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report, here are a couple of graphs that just show that uh, we go back, uh, you know, many, many years, 2,000 years or so, we can see that, uh, you know, the surface temperature stayed pretty steady. Uh, and then in, since the Industrial Revolution, that's what that 1850 represents. And the Industrial Revolution can be defined in many ways. Um, in terms of, um, I guess, geology or ecology or geoscience, uh, it's usually defined as when we, human beings, went from primarily using renewable resources for energy, water, wind, et cetera, wood, uh, to using non-renewable resources for energy, coal, gasoline, um, and so on, and so electricity, and so on and so forth. And so you can see that the greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide being the main one, uh, result, resulted in warming. And the way that this um, works, this meaning the uh, introduction of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, is that when uh, sun rays come in from the sun, uh, they come in as what you might call ultraviolet radiation. If you ever use sunscreen, there's a number that corresponds to ultraviolet radiation. That's that shortwave radiation that comes in from the sun. That doesn't warm the atmosphere. What happens is that radiation is absorbed by the earth and then released into the atmosphere as long wave or terrestrial radiation, uh, which is absorbed by carbon dioxide, also absorbed by water vapor, uh, also absorbed by methane, and other greenhouse gases. And when we as human beings uh, burn fossil fuels, uh, we pump a lot more uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere than nature ever intended. And of course it results in uh, warming. And if I had time, I would show you that the atmospheric atmosphere, Earth's atmosphere or the lower atmosphere where we are is about 80% nitrogen. 
you know, maybe about 19% oxygen. A lot of people think that the atmosphere is oxygen rich. And so that last 1%, all the other gases, including carbon dioxide, comprise that last less than 1% of the atmosphere. And so it might cause you to ask, well, how can that little tiny volume of carbon dioxide cause all this trouble and disruption? How, how can that be? Um, but scientists or atmospheric scientists have built models, very complex models on supercomputers to model the atmosphere. And when they have tweaked carbon dioxide, they see the um, subsequent change in temperature. So yes, that little bit of carbon dioxide does make uh, that much of a difference. And we've heard all of the arguments for and against uh, climate change. And the argument is not if climate change is or is not happening. That, that's not the argument. The argument is, is it human caused? Is it anthropocentric? Or is it natural? And certainly the Earth's atmosphere does change on its own. We've had a couple of ice ages and there were no humans in sight no cars, you know, nothing. You know, the atmosphere got colder, then it warmed up. We, we didn't have anything to do with that. Uh, and some, there are some people who are arguing, well, you know, the earth's just warming up on its own. It's, you know, we humans are too insignificant to have this great of an effect upon the atmosphere. How can we think that we're so great that we can cause all this damage when, when one, one volcano, a single volcano by itself, a single volcanic eruption, I'm sorry, can put enough material in the atmosphere to alter global temperatures for a few years afterwards. One volcano, one volcano. So maybe nature is just too big and bad for us to think that we can do that. Um, but so there, there's an argument, but whether or not um, we agree on how it's happening, uh, something has to be done. Because even doing nothing will have a result, you know, and it might not be a good. Uh, and so, so here is the relationship between uh, climate change and, and sea level rise. So you have carbon dioxide, highest it's ever been, at least that we know of uh, as humans. Sea level rise is rising. Of course, the glaciers are retreating, Arctic sea ice is, is, is going away, and so all these things result in uh, sea level rise. Or probably that's what I was showing graphically in those drone images, is it's sunny and mm -hmm. still floods, uh, no rain. Uh, and so when that happens, as you can see, among, among it, in addition to it being a nuisance to us, this tidal flooding, this, is, this especially occurs in coastal areas. Uh, our storm systems are designed for normal conditions. When it rains, we get flooding. Um, but if we get flooding when it's not raining, guess what happens when rain is added to that? Then we have a situation that we, we haven't planned for where there's far more flooding than we ever anticipated. And just while I'm on the topic, uh, uh, some of you might have heard in the news about that, that uh, terrible tragedy in South Florida uh, where that condo 
uh, building collapsed. And, yes. and there was a discussion in part that said that it was in part due to the fact that when sea level, when the sea level rises, uh, it pushes, it was called saltwater intrusion. And so that saltwater intrudes underground into the foundations of buildings. And so the engineers observed that over, the, the building wasn't that old. It was only 40 years old. But when you have salt water instead of flesh, fresh water uh, coming into contact with um, rebar steel that's inside of concrete and just dissolves it away, then you see you know, that that was seen as being a contributing factor in addition to some design flaws. You know, the, the core, apparently the, the engineers know that this happens in coastal areas. So they designed, supposedly designed the foundations of these structures to be sloped so that the water will run off. But this saline water was ponding because that slope wasn't great enough and it dissolved the base of the building and unfortunately um you know humans make mistakes and there were mistakes made that really cost almost 100 people their lives uh in that terrible tragedy um, but it was in part due to this interaction between uh salt water and fresh water um but in terms of of impacts to ecosystems uh as you can see here in red when, when this uh, water flows off, uh, flows off of, of the um, mainland uh, into coastal waters, it causes a series of chemical reactions uh, that increase the um, rate, of, rate of decay uh, and increase algal bloom which sucks oxygen out of the water. Uh, and I'm trying to use a simple explanation I can for what happens. But basically, when you get too, an overgrowth of algae uh, due to these nutrients flowing in as a result of this increased interaction between salt and fresh water, eventually uh, the algae have to die. They fall to the bottom and that process uh, really downgrades uh, the oxygen that is available in water for fish and other aquatic life. And so um, the it's been observed that there are entire portions of coastal areas that are now dead zones, you know, where nothing can survive, not fish, not, not, not shellfish, not anything. Uh, and so this is a, a very serious um, effect of, of sea level rise, uh, which is associated with global warming in terms of ecosystem destruction. Could you say a little more about um, how it gets to the point where the, um, the spawning algae blooms? So you said water, um, what's the process again? So the, so the water is- yeah, so so part of, there is a human impact. I mean, a lot of, you know, we use fertilizers and all kinds of things on our land. And, and when that daylight flooding, when that water eventually has to run off 
and you eventually get more of that runoff than would normally occur uh, with sea level rise combined with um, this type of uh, daylight flooding. And that introduces nutrients such as phosphates. And you know, phosphates, that's what's used in fertilizer. And it just causes plants to grow and overgrow in water and they just take over uh, and eventually die. And through that um, biodegradation, that results in consumption of oxygen. And so you know, as a net result, you have loss of oxygen. Uh, Thank you. To, that's, yeah, it's yeah, almost I, like putting fertilizer in the water uh, and just throwing things completely out of balance what happens to aquatic life uh, when these algal blooms occur in coastal areas. Uh, and it's a combination between, you know, our, our use of land, uh, introducing um, fertilizers uh, on our lawns and, and especially in agricultural practices. Uh, and then that combines with uh, the um, plant life that already exists, it overgrows, it dies, and it just robs the um, robs fish and other aquatic life of oxygen. Uh, and it's a very um, it's a very difficult issue to control. Uh, um, I'm going to now move on to wetlands. Uh, wetlands are very important ecosystems. Uh, they serve many functions. Uh, wetlands are nature's flood control system. Uh, they slow down the uh, velocity of floods. So if there is a hurricane or a tropical storm, uh, if wetlands are there, uh, they will slow down the velocity of the storm surge. And it's that storm surge velocity that causes a lot of damage in coastal areas. Um, also wetlands from an ecosystem standpoint about the majority of the fish that we eat are born and bred in wetlands ecosystems, the majority of them. Uh, we get rid of the wetlands. If the wetlands are lost uh, due to sea level rise, uh, then guess what? Uh, we lose a substantial portion of the seafood industry. Uh, when, and so wetlands, wetland ecosystems um, uh, keep shorelines intact. In and, and they, they serve a variety of functions, but they're very fragile ecosystems that really depend upon a balance amongst water, land, and plant life. Uh, it's, very, it's a very specific uh, balance that is really maintained by the flow of water through them. Uh, and so if you ever hear of something called wetland function, that's basically a measure of the, of the flow of water through the ecosystem. And if that flow of water changes in any way, if there's less of it, or if there's too much of it, uh, it'll alter the entire ecosystem. Certain, certain plant species that, are, that, that like water, uh, if they don't get enough water, they'll die. There's certain plant species that are more upland, if they get too much water, they'll die off. It'll destroy the entire uh, wetland ecosystem. And so, um, you know, here is how sea level rise uh, has a direct impact upon the uh, loss of coastal wetlands, which is happening at a rapid pace. We have 
four parts of a wetland ecosystem. Uh, there's open water. Uh, and then that's part one. Uh, the second part is the part that's covered by submerged plants. So you have like water lilies, cattails, or partially submerged plants. Uh, then you have plants that are not submerged, but they really like to exist in very moist soil. Uh, that's the third part. Uh, and then the last part of these upland plants. And so a lot of a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that, well, these upland plants, oh, they're not really part of the wetland ecosystem. They absolutely are. All of these four parts, open water, submerged plants, um, water-loving plants, and upland plants, all four of these parts of the wetland ecosystem are necessary for this ecosystem to function and you know, provide us with all of these various uh, species that depending, then depend upon this system's remaining in balance to survive. Uh, and so again, what happens is if we get sea level rise and too much salt water gets into these um, plants that might not like salt a whole lot, you know, they'll die. Uh, and so this is why we, uh, these very delicate ecosystems are in trouble. Um, then, of course, if the plants died, and that's going to affect the wildlife. And if the fish died, and this, this blue heron here won't have anything to eat, it's not going to be there anymore, and so on and so forth. Um, and so we, uh, you know, anything that disrupts the food chain at any part is going to have a significant impact. E even if there's a change that that in the salinity that affects the um, the the phytoplankton and zooplankton, you know, at the bottom of the food chain, uh, then whatever eats them is not going to have anything to eat, you know, and then of course that'll go all the way up to the top of the food chain, which is probably in this ecosystem, this pelican uh, here. Uh, and you, so you can see all of the, um, you know, fascinating mixtures of plants and soils and uh, trees and, and, and creatures that are in, make up a wetland ecosystem. Uh, and it's a very delicate balance. You know, we had a teacher that had commented about um, following some research. I noticed that you had there the, the mangroves and um, that something about that the mangroves are slowly marching inland because of rising sea levels. And is that related to this? Um, yeah, yes, because um, a plant can only live where it has it can tolerate the combination of, of moisture and temperature. And if the, uh, if, you know, mangroves are adapted to a specific um, salt content in, in water and that changes, then the mangroves move. They, they, they'll, they'll, they'll move away from that area uh, as we have, you know, perhaps, you know, more increasing salt content and mangroves can't tolerate it. They'll move inland and maybe if there's no place for them to move, they won't be there anymore. And of course we know that mangroves are really an important part of the coastal wetland ecosystem. So as the, the sea level self rises, do we, I mean, it's, you've been researching this 
And so I think you're probably the best person to make a guess. And I understand it is a guess because no one knows what will happen tomorrow. But uh, as the sea level continues to rise, assume taking the assumption that it, it, it might, do you see um, beyond economic? Do you, are there going to be um, an array of additional environmental factors that are going to be impacted severely? Uh, well, yes, you said beyond economic. Um... Yeah, because I know economics wise, it's in like the first picture you showed with the restaurants and stuff are being, I mean, literally engulfed, but with the sea level rise. So, uh, so the human infrastructure close by there, I expect will take quite a hit. But beyond that, have we changed the coastal region enough that the environmental impact is not going to be quite as severe? Or is it actually going to be worse because of the changes we've made? Well, one of the um, interesting maps that I found is, is, is that there are maps of growing seasons for plants uh, throughout North America. And what's happening is as climate change has, um, has marched forward, we've seen uh, certain species of plants, including wetlands plants, uh, in places where we wouldn't normally see them because, uh, for example, a lot of the um, places that are in the, I guess, mid-south are having, you know, summers or just year-round temperatures that you might have experienced in Louisiana. And maybe for places in Louisiana are now more almost like tropical regions. And so it's really, um, throwing a lot of things out of balance um, in terms of, of plant ecosystems, which again, of course, support um, 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 zoological ecosystems. And so it's, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, the IPCC report, you know, there are still people saying, well, it's not too late. Maybe we can do something about it. I guess they're being very optimistic, um, but for the most part, um, from what I've read in some of the summaries, some of this is kind of irreversible. And the, the question that we have now is whether we're going to do have mitigation or adaptation. And wow. so mitigation is um, so mitigation is if we stop burning all these fossil fuels, uh, go to um, you know electric cars. Um, there's mitigation happening in coastal regions where these wetlands are being reconstructed uh, by humans, which is extraordinarily difficult. Um, if you've ever worked in, I mean, I've, I've worked for the Bureau of Land Management years ago, and there were cases of where we had mining sites that were denuded um, by, by mines, by mining operations. And we'd go in and we'd try to replant. And a couple of years later, those plants would not survive. Interestingly enough, those same areas, if they got burned over, the plants would come back. So there's something about human intervention and destruction of ecosystems that takes a lot longer for nature to recover from than if nature does it him or her, her, herself. You know, if nature, there's a volcanic eruption, destroys everything, Maybe might take a while, but back comes the the life. Even after you know volcanic eruption, just takes everything out. Yeah. Um, but now, if we do it as humans through our actions, 
Um, it's very difficult to reverse. So, or very difficult to, and even more difficult to fix even with our own mitigation. And so there's a whole area called wetlands ecosystem mitigation that you can read about. And you can just see how difficult that is. I mean, and all these, you know, very intelligent scientists and ecologists will come together and, and reconstruct the wetland. And it might be fine for about three or four years and then it'll just dry up. Whereas nature will create a wetland and it'll last as long as we don't mess it up, you know? <laughs> um, and so, so, but so that, so mitigation is when we try to fix something. Adaptation is when we just say, you know what, let's move inland. And that's what's happening in many places along the Gulf Coast. There are entire communities, uh, especially in the lower um, Mississippi River Delta around Plaquemines Parish, there are entire communities that in the last 30 or 40 years are completely gone, you know, underwater. Um, and so it is, and so plants and are going to adapt also if they are able to, but we humans have taken up so much of what would normally be um, uh, an escape area or escape route for various species that they literally have no place to to go. Uh, you know, they whereas maybe at one time, if there was a retreat of mangroves or other. Uh, uh, plants or other parts of the ecosystem, they could retreat to upland land. That upland land is now parking lots, Walmart, your house, you know, no place to go. And then they, they disappear. Uh, so it's, we can certainly adapt, but it's, um, uh, it's in some cases going to be difficult for uh, these species that are um, very much tuned to their uh, coastal ecosystems balance to, to adapt if, if there's no place for them to go, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's, and that's, that'd be interesting. Hopefully we can uh, both mitigate and adapt to be able to help that environment. And uh, those are some really awesome points. And a lot of the variables that you mentioned, I would not have thought of. With the, uh, as you say, the dissolved oxygen change, I did not even think about that. I mean, I should have, because with the lakes that we have, since we're totally inland here in the Midwest, the lakes we have and stuff, that that's concern, and say so with the dissolved oxygen, and so I, I should have, I, I guess that's just a lot bigger when you're talking uh, coastal-wise, but it's, we just don't think with the coast being attached to the ocean, anything can happen to it, because it's too big. But uh, we certainly can, obviously, especially as you mentioned with the dead zones that we're getting there. And uh, that, that's, a, that's a frightening thing. And hopefully we can adapt in a positive way and uh, start being able to help these areas a lot better. We, we really appreciate all of your insights today on um, sea level rise, the impact on ecosystems, and um, just all the information and resources that you've given us. This has been good. Yes. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. I appreciate it.